you know, stop me if you've heard this one. But in the year 401, uh, a 16-year-old boy named Patrick was kidnapped off the coast of Britain by violent Irish slave traders. He was made the slave of an Irish chieftain and assigned the role of a shepherd, being isolated for months in the cold mountains in a land where he did not know the local languages. Six years after his kidnapping, Patrick had a, had a dream. In his sleep, he heard a voice say, Your hungers are rewarded. You are going home. He sat up, startled, and the voice continued, Look, your ship is ready. Now, this didn't make any sense. He was miles from anywhere, and he had no resources. Still, when God says, Go, you go. Patrick got up and started walking. 200 miles later, he came to the coast and saw a ship. Now, no ship was about to give passage to a fugitive slave, and the captain told the young man to move on. But Patrick knew that this was his ship, so he spent some time in prayer, and before he had finished, one of the sailors came after him with a message that he could sail with him. It takes him two years, but finally he arrives home to Britain, and his overjoyed parents beg him not to ever leave again. But one night, a man who he knew when he was a slave in Ireland appears to him in a vision, and he holds a letter with the heading, The Voice of the Irish. The young man then hears a voice of a multitude crying, we beg you to come and walk among us once more. Try as he might, Patrick cannot put the Irish out of his mind. The visions keep coming until he finally gives in. He enrolls to be trained for the ministry and emerges sometime later an ordained priest and bishop. And so a young bishop by the name of Patrick heads off to become the first known missionary to Ireland. His mission is astonishingly successful. The Irish rapidly embrace the Christian faith and by the time of his death, Christianity has been established across Ireland. The Irish slave trade has ended and murder and intertribal warfare have markedly decreased. You see, St. Patrick knew that when God says go, you go. Sahid was a 27-year-old and he had boarded a bus in order to share the gospel in one of Pakistan's more dangerous areas. And this was despite the fact that Muslim extremists in this area kind of prowled for Jesus followers uh, like lions seeking prey. And he was on the bus and he started to talk to people about Jesus. He spoke openly because years earlier he had a dream that a large open door stood at the entrance to one of Pakistan's prominent cities. It was God's way of guiding him and opening new doors for the gospel. And when God says go, you go. During the decade that followed the dream, Sahid led hundreds of Pakistanis to Jesus. Now shortly after he had got off of this bus, about a dozen guys grab him. They tie a blindfold over his eyes and they shove him into the back seat of a car. 25 minutes later, they dump him at a compound where other people start to question him. Who are you? The leader demanded. Are you a preacher? Are you converting Muslims? Which organization do you belong to? And Sahid was silent with fear. Are you a mute? Another asked. We will kill you if you don't answer our questions. I'm telling you the truth, Sahid said. I'm God's preacher. If you want to spare your life, you must deny your faith and become a Muslim. If you don't do as we say, we will torture you. Within 30 minutes, your passion for Christianity will blow away like dust in the wind. I am ready for whatever you choose to do to me. So he declared, I am prepared to die for Jesus. I will not lose my passion for him no matter what you do to me. Sahid's kidnappers strapped him to a tree, tied his hands behind him, and forced him to stand barefoot on a block of ice. The Pakistani heat bore down on him, baking the rest of his body while his feet seethed in pain as if he were standing on a million pins. Half an hour became an hour. An hour became two hours. Two hours became four. The bottoms and lower sides of Sahid's feet swelled into blisters tinted in green. He wept, but he did not speak. Sweat poured from his body and stained his clothes. Look, jeered one of the onlookers, it's a hundred degrees and the Jesus lover has frostbite. And the crowd laughed. 
Maybe now you will give up this futile running after Jesus and return to where you belong, a tormentor said. Maybe now you will return to Allah. Zahid shook his head no. Then you will be following Jesus on stumps, the man replied. When your feet crumble, we will ice down your nubs. When your nubs freeze, we will saw them off. Jesus will turn and look for you, but you will not be there because you will be a man with no legs. Ha! But if you follow Allah, you will not only walk but also run. Isn't that the better option? Again, Zahid shook his head no. Jesus, he cried out after hours of ice torture, help me, help me, Jesus. So he later recalled what happened next. He said, suddenly I saw a vision of a radiant angel appearing in front of me. Jesus was with me, like the fourth man when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace. And his pain eased. He gained strength. And to the surprise of his tormentors and the crowd mocking him, he began to sing worship songs. Then he blacked out. So he'd awoke in the middle of the night, lying in a drainage ditch alongside a dirt road. His wallet and a Hebrew language book he'd been carrying sat beside him. A passerby, a modern-day Good Samaritan, checked him into a local hotel and paid for him to stay there for three days while he recovered. Afterwards, Sahid's brother took him for medical treatment and then home to rest. Sahid's tormentors stated that without feet, Sahid would be unable to follow Jesus, yet today he is still walking, and he's still talking about his beloved Savior. You see, no matter the consequences or the cost, when God says, go, you go. Now, those are... Those are cool stories of faith, right? But there's things that seem like more complicated than that to me. Like, and in some, some ways so small. I hear stories like that and I think, boy, it, was, it had to have been so clear. Like I got dreams, those guys. They knew what they were supposed to do. And it seems so big. St. Patrick changed the face of Ireland for Jesus. And this guy, well, I mean, he actually, he just got on a bus. So maybe when God says go, it's... It sometimes is in the small things because he's building to something bigger. But I, I think I have questions around stories like that. How exactly did they hear God? Like, like I don't know, how can you trust a dream? How do you know you just you shouldn't hit the taco truck before you got there? Like sometimes you, get, you eat something bad and it gives you funky dreams and I'm not sure that's always a message from Jesus. And the truth is from a Western culture society, we're largely not open to being moved by dreams. They creep us out a little bit. Um, there's a lot of stories of um, folks in Eastern cultures, um, Muslims especially, that are... Um, coming to Jesus through visions, very similar things to this. Um, but I don't know, I just I don't, I have a hard time trusting that. How do they know that they heard from God? How could they trust that it was God saying it and not just something that they wanted, that they kind of put in God's mouth and said, okay, God's having me do this? Or how do they know it's not something that they thought, well, kind of sniffed like something God might want, but they were not quite sure about, so maybe we'll do it and say that God said it. It was God's fault. God told me. I don't know, those seem like really big things that make a giant impact on the world. And my questions seem a lot smaller at times. Does God still say go in the small things? Is it just, hey, get on the bus? And it makes you wonder. The book of Acts tells the story of the early church. It's just after Jesus ascends to heaven and his followers are faced with the task of telling the world who he is, what he has done, and how they can be part of it. In Acts 13, we catch up with the church going about that very business. It says, Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Well, so that was kind of clear, right? And when they say he said, like, what does that, what does that mean? Like a big booming voice? Was it a, 
He was clear, though. Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called for them. Acts, 14, Acts 13, 4 continues, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. Because when God says go, you go. But what we don't get to see in Scripture is a bunch of stuff I still have questions about, right? Like on my level, how do they know so clearly? Like I said the Holy Spirit said, but how do you know that? Did they obey immediately? Or, or did it take them a while to kind of sort out what God had going on? And, and what about their relationships? Like they were all part of this church in Antioch. That must have been quite a place, right? Like th- these are some big names like where, where people are loving and following Jesus, doing the Lord's work. It must have been pretty cool to be around that group of people. And it seems easy to know when God calls you from something bad or unhealthy to something that is better. Like, that's a no-brainer. When I feel like, hey, God has called me to stop, uh, I don't know, looking at porn, or, or God has called me to stop robbing people. Like, these seem easy things. We're like, well, yeah, I feel like God did that. Okay, we can move on. But like, what if God calls you from something that is just a God preference type of thing? How do you, how do you know that? Maybe it's not as easy. These fellows were already part of something good. It seems like it would be way less obvious to leave something that the Lord is already doing. So they, they had to have been part of a, growing that group of believers, being part of their lives, sharing in their struggles, being mutually encouraged in their pursuit of Jesus. It seems like it would be hard. In fact, I know it's hard. Very, very hard. You see, these questions that I find myself asking about guys like Paul and Barnabas are questions that I've been fighting and praying through myself. About a year and a half ago, maybe a little more, um, I felt like God was calling me to start a church. And I ignored it. Uh, it, it hadn't if it'd been a plan of mine. It wasn't my intention and my role here to do that. Um, I had plenty to do here. There's classes I could teach, people to meet with over a cheap breakfast at the Cozy Cafe. It's like three ninety five on a weekday. That's where I go. Uh, plus, I'm not really cut out for it. Like, I don't have a, I don't have a degree in biblical studies. I, don't, I didn't go through seminary. Um, some of you have heard me talk, you can see my hands doing this, talk about anxiety around preaching, like getting physically ill. It's part of why I sit, right? This isn't the hipster preacher thing where we just start sitting. Like I physically can't stand a lot when I'm preaching it. Um, my, my belly just gets so nervous, I can't take it very well. And so I found that sitting helps. Um, but uh, so I thought, like I can't, I get real anxious about it. Uh, it this week was, it was no different. Um, I get the same thing when I meet with people and I, I hear like the stuff that's going on in their lives. I worry about them. I have trouble sleeping. I get very anxious. I thought, I just, I'm not made for this. I'm not made for it. So I said, no, you're mistaken. Um, but it kept coming up. I'd ignore it. Uh, God would bring it back up. It happened in a lot of ways. Things I read, I mean, not like, hey, I was reading like Narnia or something and it says, by the way, Ben, you should plant a church. That didn't happen. Um, but it just, it just, stuff I'd put away kept coming up. Things I read, conversation I had, and I'll, it, it, even a dream. And it wasn't as, as, as obvious, I think, as, as what I'd wanted. But I, um, I was praying fervently through this. And I'm like, I need to know. I, I'm not even asking for a clear answer here. But I need to know that I'm thinking through this right. Am I, am I processing this correctly? And um, <laughs> the crux of the dream was, yes, Jesus is Lord. <laughs> well, that sounds right. That sounds right. Jesus is Lord. Um, it kind of creeped me out, actually. So I, but I finally decided I couldn't keep saying no. Um, if this is God's call, only an absolute fool would say no. And I had been that fool, trying to feverishly vet out in reasonable ways, fighting the guilt of having to not be here. Um, an evaluation of some of the things that I intended to accomplish at Pathway would left un- incomplete and in some cases unstarted. And that's not a God thing. God will sort that out. He'll do the stuff that he wants done. But um, it was a personal thing. 
But when God says go, you go. Even when you don't know everything you want to know. Even when like the church at Antioch, those fellows weren't running away from something but to work that God had prepared for them. Even when they had no guarantee of success or even how to define that properly. Even then, when God says go, you go. So next Sunday will be the last uh, Sunday that my family and I will be sharing a Sunday morning space um, with you guys. And that, and that means something to me. Um, we will still share a kingdom, of course. Uh, we're just making distinctions at this point over time and location of when we run into each other. Um, we're starting a house church beginning in September. Now, you can't say things like house church and then kind of drop the mic and run away. So I've prepared a series of questions that I would ask if I were you and you had said the things that I said. So parse that out in your mind and then come back to me. Thank you. Um, so uh, I'll go through some of these questions that I think might help um, answer some things you might be wondering. And I'll start with the gossipy ones, uh, just because sometimes questions pop into your brain that you weren't really considering before, but then they start to carry some weight simply because you thought of it, because you think you're too important. That's the root of that, by the way. I thought of this. It must have some weight to it, okay? It's not true, but uh, I'll, I'll get the gossipy ones out of the way, and then we can get some of the more interesting stuff. So the first question is, uh, are you sure you didn't get fired? Uh, so I, I think so. Like, as far as I know... Uh, I, I, I wasn't fired, although I did a count yesterday, I was looking at it, and I've, I think I've preached like 30 plus times here, uh, which seemed many, too many, but like, I'm, I'm guessing that around the fourth or fifth time that my sermons rounded the 40 minute mark, and were supposed to be done at 25 minutes, that Dan was like, well, are we sure God doesn't have someone else that maybe is supposed to be handling this, because this guy's a bit windy, okay? Um, so you might have to ask him how close that came, but I, as far as I know, I didn't, I didn't get fired. Um... Are you leaving because of insert sins of various levels of salaciousness, you gossipy hounds? No. Uh, no, my marriage is fine. I've not been stealing things from the church except for pens, which I've been trying to gather. But here's the thing. I'm not the only guy. All right? We don't need to go through as many pens as we go through around here. You all got stacks at your house. They're in your car. They're in the place where you stick stuff in the back seat and you don't check for months. And there's like eight of them in there. You give them to your kids. When okay, I know you have the pens. Uh, they're not crazy expensive, but we could probably use them back. So, you know, if you want to do a, like a, what's, what do you do with the library? Amnesty day? Amnesty day on the pins, okay? Gather them, I'll bring some back. <laughs> you guys need to hunt yours down. Um, but no, I'm not leaving because of that. Are you leaving for any other scandalous or gossipy, interesting reason? No. No, you guys are stuck on this. You need to let that go. Uh, things are fine. So I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no. Uh, what is a house church? So it's basically, well, it's just a community of believers that meets in a house. It's not more complicated than that. Uh, but a lot of it ties back to our understanding of the church in Acts and throughout the first and second centuries. There just weren't, there weren't any church buildings. There wasn't, wasn't property. It wasn't really an institution. Um, it was just communities of people that gathered in homes and shared meals and, and talked about Jesus. Um, and so I think uh, that's, that's what we're going to do. Uh, why? Why a house church? Uh, size? Um, like I said, I, um, I don't know if I can take much more. <laughs> so there's only a certain amount of people who can fit in a house. And um, uh, I, I just, it just feels right. It feels simple to me. Um, and I, I found that a lot of the stuff over the last few years, even here, um, uh, my reaction to a lot of things is to try to simplify them. Like, how do I cut things down to their bare nubbins? Now, there's, there's reasons that that's, um, there's very good reasons for that. Um, and then there's, there's reasons that, that that might not do what you want it to. Um, but that's, that's kind of what I feel like God is, is, is dragging me to is um, simplicity of stuff. And so it cuts the size way down um, that we just, we don't have a lot of the conveniences and stuff, right? If you've ever had a small group, it'll, it'll feel kind of like that. 
Um, so there'll be kids kind of running in and out, and uh, you won't get your house clean the way that you wanted, and it will freak you out. And people will constantly bring in their wet boots up your stairs. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, we're signing up for that. Okay, house church. Um, resources, it requires no infrastructure investment. Um, there's no, we're not paying for any type of space or anything. We're not paying me. There's just um, money will go to different places than those things. Um, and like I said, it takes things down to its core. And one of the interesting things is that, like, um, uh, no one wanders into a house church. Okay, you got there because you invited somebody there. Um, it's discipleship at its, at its core where sometimes we might um, lean on good things like um, small groups and ministries and things. Um, sometimes we um, abdicate those. We abdicate our work of disciple making to things, groups. Um, and those things will help do, do that. Um, but when you turn it over, um, I think we kind of miss some of that. The truth is, from a, from a simplicity perspective, like, no one's coming in. There's not a sign outside. Like, <laughs> you're there because someone invited you there. Um, and so I, that, that ki- does kind of excite me a little bit. And like I said, I don't think I have the stomach for more. I don't know that I could, um, I don't know. There's many times where I prayed before preaching. I thought, this can't be right. You're not supposed to feel this way. <laughs> Certainly, I should be doing something else with my life. And as it was eventual truth. Um, normal question when it comes to house churches is what do you do if it grows and they, here's the answer I don't know I don't know uh, I consider that a Holy Spirit problem if the Spirit sends people then it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to help us solve the problem and what to do with them uh, they're his people uh, anyway okay so in general we're taking the unreasonable position of saying we don't worry about problems that we don't have and I expect God will provide the problems if they're good and then he'll provide the solutions when, um, when they need to come so um, I'm going to kind of put that in his hands so I'm either being lazy or faithful I guess we'll see how that shakes out um, and here's the thing, is we're being faithful in following Jesus and bringing other people with us, the kingdom will naturally grow. That's the truth. It will and it should. I'm, just, I'm far less concerned that it grows our particular uh, group. Um, house church isn't for everybody, right? Like, it's not likely uh, that you're going to find the, uh, people that are willing to put up with some of the circumstances. There's amenities and buildings that are really nice. Um, but it's likely that people will meet Jesus with and through us um, and then move on and then join like a more structured, uh, larger community as they pursue Jesus. And that's great. That's fantastic. The kingdom's grown. I don't, it's fine. So um, uh, God's going to do whatever he wants with that. And, I'm, and, I'm, and that's, that's how we're going to approach it. Um, what will you miss most about Pathway? That's not fair. I'm prone to weeping. You guys can't ask things like that. Um, so, you know, I met Jesus elsewhere, um, but I really started hounding him here. And that's awesome. Um, I'll miss playing with the sound system and Rick. Where did we go? I like playing with Rick at the soundboard. Uh, the house church don't even need a radio. So, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a degrade. Um, I'll miss haunting government auction websites to stock the building with stuff. That was a lot of fun, I'll be honest, guys. Probably the most fun I had in the last two or three years was hunting down some of the stuff that you're sitting on or in or looking at. Um, I'll miss preaching, even though it makes me sick. Um, Dan couldn't have been more gracious um, to take a chance on me and I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that because the truth is that none of my next steps would have ever occurred without those first steps and they weren't steps that I was trying to take um, they were steps I was encouraged in um, I'll miss teaching for those of you that went through the classes with me like I, I grew a lot through those I, I thank you for, for doing that um, my relationship with Jesus grew my tightening with my community grew uh, my love of studying the Bible grew it was um, I will miss that uh, but most of all, I'll, I'll miss you guys, of course. Um, sound guys, worship team, ministry team, building teams. I had, the, I had the chance to touch a lot of different things, some with various degrees of success, but all of, of which deepen my community here. Um, like I said, we still share a kingdom, but the, the reality is that our paths will cross significantly less going forward. 
if at all, and that's kind of a bummer, uh, it's kind of a bummer uh, because I love almost all of you. Uh, but when God says go, you go. Uh, anything preachy on your mind yet, Wendy McWinderson? Man, you guys are getting salty. Um, all right, let me, let me leave you with what I think that we're being sent out with, okay? That same Paul that left Antioch was writing to a church he planted in the town of Corinth, and his admission to, uh, admonition to them was basically, follow me as I follow Christ. The core of the Christian life is that. Follow Jesus and take someone with you. It's as simple as that. And it's the call for every Christian in every church, no matter the size or the format or the location. Hey, it doesn't matter. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Pursue Jesus Christ. Follow him and take someone with you. And that's our true measure of success. Like I, when I first was kind of thinking through this thought of a house church, I thought, like, I don't, how do I know it's, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing? How do I know it's working out? And like, churches can count a lot of things. How many people are here? Are programs growing? Are we, is the building getting bigger? Are we, like, whatever. There's a lot of things that churches can count. Right? But like, the thing that matters is are we following Jesus here? Ten or a hundred or a thousand? Are we following Jesus? And are we taking people with us? Are we following Jesus or are we taking people with us? That's, that's, our, that's our measure of success. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, this is, uh, in, in Matthew, it's uh, talking about Jesus. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Do you ever notice that? I, I can't, like, until this week, I didn't notice that. The first interaction we see between Jesus and those that would be responsible for growing his kingdom after he's gone was follow me. That's what he's called. He, when he calls the, the disciples, right? But what does he tell them? I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to follow me, and you're going to bring people with you. Even at the very first call to the disciples, it was part of what he was talking about. He had a focus on people following him and taking people with us. Strip away everything else. And this, I'm, I'm, personally, I want you to hear this personally. Strip away everything else and ask yourself, am I passionately pursuing Jesus? And am I taking people with me? If we're being honest with ourselves, I'm going I'm to take a chance and kind of speak broadly for the group. Most of us feel like we're following Jesus. But in general, we're not taking people with us. Here's what I need you to hear, is that doesn't make any flying sense at all. How can that possibly be? How can we claim to follow Jesus who died so that a world could be saved and then live in a dichotomy that says, oh, I follow Jesus, but I'm not taking anybody with me. How can that be true? People want good news. That's why they call it good news. The world is thirsty for it. Here's the thing. The church has absolutely nothing to offer if not Jesus Christ. Everything else is a charade. It's a facade. They can get a lot of, even community, for as much as I love church community and it has been a ton to me and meant a lot to me, shy of a community defined by Jesus Christ, other people can compete. Your average bar on a Friday night can compete. The church has nothing to offer if it does not have Jesus Christ. They can't get that anywhere but from his people. That's us. And that's good news. Continuing in Matthew 9, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, the harvest is plentiful. People want good news. Can you run anybody through your mind throughout your entire life who couldn't use some good news? People in pain, people who need peace, who lack joy, who've been very, very hurt by humanity in a world that they live in, and there's good news available. I can't think of a one of us that doesn't need good news. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. The problem is, and this is a hard part because I'm talking to me as I'm talking to you, the world wants good news and we often don't have it to give. Sometimes the deficit to making disciples is that we're not passionately pursuing Jesus ourselves. You see, as we pursue Christ, it is what pours forth from that which drives us to take people with us. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the good news. The thing is, is sometimes even Christians, we, we hear it and we, and, we, and we come to follow Jesus and then we stop, we forget that we are still the recipients of that continual good news. I still need it every day. Every day when I do something that separates me from my Lord, I need to be reminded that there is good news. And here's the thing with, here's the thing with this. Let's, let's break it down to its core. You and I know that we're not perfect. Like we're, everyone's well aware of that. I can't find anybody in the world who claims to be perfect. They know that there's a deficit in what is good and what they are doing. Okay? What we generally disassociate, though, is that there's a cost to that. There's something that comes along with not actually living the way that we're supposed to live, and it creates a deficit. It creates uh, a wrong into the world, and it separates us from God. And you have no way to reconcile that on your own. You can't put it back once you've separated it. And that separation is from, the, is from the God that created you and knows you to your core. You're missing out on the greatest love and joy and grace and peace that is available, and you are separated from that. And that's terrible news. But that same God who offers those same things looks down and says, I know that you can't reconcile this. I will handle it. I will personally come and pay the price because the price wasn't eliminated. The thing that you submitted out into the universe of the, the, the negative, the, the wrong, was still there. It just had to be reconciled. And instead of you paying the price, which is death, Jesus says, I'll do it. And he doesn't mitigate the circumstance. He doesn't say, well, because it's me, I'll chalk it up to a $5 fine. He says, no, the price was always this and it will be paid and I will do it for you because I love you. And that's good news. And I can't think of a person who doesn't need it. And sometimes I feel like that my deficit is that I forget that I have good news to give. And so I might, I might attempt to make disciples, but I'll make disciples of me, and that stinks. But when I am filled and overflowing with the good news of Jesus Christ, I cannot help but tell the world, and I cannot help but make followers of Him. Our deficit at times of making disciples, I don't want you to hear, say, I need to make disciples and start feeling guilty about it. I want you to hear it and start following Jesus Christ more. Pursue Him more passionately. From that, you will make disciples. You will be following Him and you will be taking people with you. How do you pursue Jesus? Maybe we don't know. Maybe we get separated from that. If they're easy, here's the deal. You're going you're to be like, I knew that. I'm going to tell you and you're going you're to know. We can read the Bible. The God who created me, died for me, loves me, and calls me to a life of obedience and joy is in this book. How can I not read it? I want to know more about this Jesus, about how he thinks. What, what, how is, what is the right way to live? Because here's the thing, that there's joy in that. It's not just slap your hand obedience. Jesus says, there's joy in this. Follow me. And it's in the book. 
It was free. How could I not read it? Prayer, the God who created me, died for me, loves me, and calls me to a life of obedience and joy is available to speak with at any time. How can I not take advantage of that? If he has ears, and I feel like he might, I burned them off this week. Nervous about this very thing that we're talking about. And he was always there. He was always listening. I can talk to that, to that Jesus. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes I leave it. I leave it on the table. Whoa, I got problems. I got sorrows. I got a Jesus, and I'm acting like I don't. It's the paleness of some of our Christian life, guys. It stinks. We're more. It's, there's more than that. Uh, and obedience. No one likes this one. We've got to write this one off. Obedience. Mother Teresa said that God has not called me to be successful. He has called me to be faithful. John, as a follower of Jesus, tells us that to love God is to obey his commandments. That's the thing, guys. There's joy in that. If I, as a good father, I would look down at my kids and say, I want you to do this because this is where joy is. This is where protection is. This is where peace is. Do that. And so I can pursue Jesus. Because here's the thing. Sometimes when we think pursue Jesus, it's in this very abstract thing. But let's actually pursue Jesus. Let's look, walk what he walked. Let's do the things that he did. Let's follow in his footsteps. So when he goes to bring the news that sets the captives free, or to help those who need help, or to visit people in prison, or to feed the hungry, or to tell the truth in a world that needs it, and if, if need be, to die for that other person, to come to serve. Those are the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We cannot follow him and not do those things. That's what following him is. Otherwise, you're not following him. You're just watching from the stands with binoculars. That's not the word. There's not a Greek word for that, for you in the stands with the binoculars. Okay? If we're going to follow Jesus, let's be honest. We have to actually follow Jesus. And that same Jesus that we follow, his footsteps led to a cross. I know that seems unlikely to you, but my question is, what's on the table? What are we following him with? Did we cut something off? We say, no, I'm not going to follow in those footsteps. I'm not going to do those things because I feel like you're not understanding what he's communicating. That's scriptural straightening that out. <laughs> That's why we read the Bible. <laughs> so first things first, we need to pursue Jesus. And then take somebody with you. Take them with you. This doesn't mean you have to be a perfect Christian. There's no such thing, guys. There's not, there's not such a thing as where you've arrived. Jesus has arrived. You are not going to arrive. Okay, take it off the table. It's not going to happen. Jesus arrives. It's saying it's how heaven works too, right? We get to the gates of heaven and Jesus is there and he gets in because he's the guy that belongs there. And then they look at you and they give you a weird look on their face and say, I don't know. And then Jesus turns around and goes, he's with me. And then you get to walk in. Those are the terms of you going to heaven. Okay, that's Jesus. Okay, you're not going to arrive, which means that there's no such thing as a perfect Christian where then you get to start following Jesus and doing the things that otherwise he did. You don't have to cross a certain threshold to be qualified to take people with you. You just have to be heading in the right direction, meaning following the right guy. It's not our job to draw lines, to call ins and outs. It's the Holy Spirit's work, man. We don't need other Holy Spirits. The one that we have is doing the job correctly. You will stink at it when you try to do it better. So knock it off. All right? We're going to follow Jesus. We're not going to draw lines or call ins and outs. We're going to pursue Him, and whatever level we're at, we're going to grab people, and they're going to come along. Some of the people that I've met that are the most on fire for Jesus are brand new believers and they have got some wacky theology. I mean, some stuff where I'd like, especially if we've gone through the Revelation class, that is the place where it, where it churns and lives is in the book of Revelation. And like, some of those guys like, are ridiculous with some of that stuff. But I tell you what, where they got Jesus right and everything else wrong, we can work together. 
We can move. And some of the most passionate people that I've seen reaching out to people, handing out Bibles, encouraging people to come to church, wanting to introduce them to Jesus are new believers. And here's the thing, we get drained doing the work of Jesus when you're not running into people meeting him. But to see the light in someone's eyes as they meet Jesus Christ and their life changes and the world starts to change around them, I swear to you, you will be jazzed up for the next 10 years. And if the work that we're doing doesn't seem to interact with that, we might reconsider our work. The joy of the Lord pours out of people like that. But that seems so foreign to some of us. Me at times. Me a lot of times. Because I think I'm missing Jesus. And in that, others are missing him as well. And here's the deal. It's not hard. It's not hard to take somebody with you. All you have to do is open up your life and at every opportunity, bring somebody along with you. I drink a lot of cheap coffee. And I eat a lot of greasy hash browns. So that I can share a few hours in the morning, a few times a week, talking with people about Jesus. And I, I, I get that I'm a, I'm a bit of a, of a wonk with the scripture stuff, but it's not like I'm preparing a Bible study. I talk about my life. We talk about their lives. But my life includes following Jesus. So my friends can hardly ever learn about my life without hearing about my Lord. I pass out books and podcasts and videos and music like it's candy. Okay? Because that's what I'm reading. It's what I'm reading. It's what I'm listening to. It's what I'm studying. All I have to do is share it. I invite folks on a radio program. Here's the thing. The rest of my life isn't cool. The radio program is at least fake cool. It seems like there's something cool going on there. So if that's what it takes for someone to come into an environment in which people are talking about Jesus, then fine. Hey, you want to come on the radio show? The eight people that are listening might not find you exciting, but I'm glad to have you sit in this room with me for a couple hours and talk about Jesus Christ because that's awesome. All you have to do is live the life that you're living with the people you're living it with. Just live it openly so that folks can meet Jesus through it. So take a look at your life today. Don't settle for a bland, stale Jesus who doesn't change the world. That Jesus is a fraud. It's a fake. That Jesus doesn't call you to anything but maybe being here on a Sunday and some minor behavior changes. That's not Jesus. The real Jesus asks for everything. And this is where he's handy. He offers everything in return. Follow him. And as for taking people with you, listen to what Jesus says. This is just prior to his ascension into heaven, after his resurrection. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's talking to you. Go and make disciples. And when God says go, you go. Let's pray.